Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Uncounseling Show with Dr. Fred Bowley. Every Thursday, the good doctor and his guests take a skeptical, Catholic look at conventional counseling and why it often doesn't work. If you want to join in the fun, drop us a note in the chat room or call in at 515-602-9655. That number, once again, is 515-602-9655. And now, Catholic therapist, spiritual advisor and legend in his own mind, Dr. Fred Bowley. Counseling work. very concerned that the so-called woke movement is making this a lot worse. This is Dr. Fred Bowley speaking. I work with the counselors through the week, but in some important ways, counseling actually does not work. Call us now or at any point during the program if you would like to ask a question or tell us your experiences in therapy. That number, once again, is 515-602-9655. Welcome, everybody, to the Uncounseling Show on the Four Persons Podcast. Uncounseling is produced by my nonprofit, St. Barnabas Reconciliation, and by the Four Persons Podcast. It's a weekly look at counseling and psychotherapy from a skeptical Catholic point of view. So whether or not you're skeptical or Catholic, remember, you're welcome in this discussion. Call up at any point at 515 515- Six zero two nine six five five. Write it down so I don't have to say it so often. Just kidding. Unfortunately, we do not have a man who's both skeptical and Catholic and luxuriantly bearded. Once again, we have no bearded Brian. We have no bearded Brian today because, unfortunately, someone in his family has a very painful abscess tooth. So Brian is looking after some kids today while our friend is uh, getting her tooth looked after. So uh, our thoughts are going out to you, and we are sending prayers upwards. Now then, there's a very interesting article in the Free Press this week. The Free Press is a um, thing that's being put out, I'm not sure what to call it, on Substack by Barry Weiss, a woman who was pushed out of the New York Times for having um, incorrect opinions or incorrect expression of the correct opinions. I don't know which. But she is, uh, as far as I can tell, she's like an old school liberal who believes in uh, freedom of speech and freedom of press. And um, so she's putting out this thing that she calls the free press. And there's a lot of articles by different writers, which are quite interesting. It is not Catholic. It is usually, I think, as far as I can tell, somewhat from the uh, left of center point of view. Um, But it's not what is being called written from the woke perspective. And that's important. It's doubly important when we start thinking about therapy. This article came out this week by Lisa Salen Davis. She talks about how um, uh, counseling and uh, clinical psychology, psychotherapy in general, has been more or less taken over by uh, the the woke movement, critical social justice movement, um, which is, here, I'll give you some of the statistics she puts out here. The uh, ACA published the Multicultural Social Justice Counseling Competencies, dividing counselors and clients into, quote, privileged, end quote, marginalized groups and encouraging them to, quote, possess an understanding of their social identities, social group statuses, power, privilege, oppression, strength. Some of you people will probably uh, recognize these uh, 
these buzzwords, catchphrases. Um, uh, let's see. National Association of Social Workers. Embrace the intrinsic role we have in combating discrimination, oppression, racism, and social inequities. It calls on all members of the social work profession to practice through an anti-racist and anti-oppressive lens. It sounds fine, doesn't it? But we all probably are familiar with these uh, sort of terms now and know that they don't mean what they used to mean. American Psychological Association, which has more than 146,000 members, primary creditor for psychology training programs. They wrote an apology to people of color for APA's role, promoting, perpetuating, failing to challenge racism, racial discrimination, and human hierarchy in the U.S. Also, it published Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Framework, once again, nice words that don't mean what you probably used to think they meant. Now, um, it has become not only predominant, but, uh, but actually um, absolutely stifling in the fields of psychotherapy and, uh, and counseling. Um, political bias in the APA, Nina Salander. She uh, reported a 532% increase in politically slanted communiques, 80% of them left-leaning. I I suspect that probably 19% of them were sort of in the middle. But if you have anything to do with counseling or psychotherapy, you know that you never, ever hear in an official um, setting, whether it's uh, academia or at a conference or anything, you never hear a conservative point of view. And this show is not to produce, not to push forward one point of view or another. I, I'm not saying um, that we should have lots of conservatism. If you know me, you know that that's sort of the political background I come from. But my aim is to try to get beyond those left and right sort of tags and look at people as people and look at situations as situations so that we find a new, better, and Catholic way of dealing with issues. And I say new, they're ever old and ever new, as we know. Okay. So the field is dominated now um, by uh, programs that train therapists with this ideological set. And so it's very hard for trainee, trainee therapists to find a way to think outside of the box. When we think about um, the, the critical justice movement or the, the woke movement, um, it, uh, some of the things that uh, I've jotted down here that are features of that are um, that uh, people are divided into categories, right? You're not an individual anymore. Um, your fate is determined by which of the official categories. So it's not as though there were a chance for any new categories either, but it's standard categories. So suppose you were um, a, a black person who was born in England. No. You are lumped in with all the black people who are born in America. Therefore, you have had the same experience and you must have the same problems and the same opinions as them, too. Well, there's not two black people born and raised in America in my neighborhood who have the same opinions. But with the woke movement, that doesn't count. What counts is the official group that you're in. Um, another point. Yes. The social, uh, the, the woke movement emphasizes um, the pursuit of power as opposed to the, uh, the expression of love. Um, now you might think, well, you're just biased, you're against them. But no, it's, uh, when you divide people into groups, it's because you look at 
every human relationship through the lens of power. Who's going to tell who what to do, right? It's like uh, that famous saying from, or the famous line from Humpty Dumpty or uh, Alice through Alice in Wonderland. Um, what really means, what really matters is uh, what I say matters, right? What a word means is what I want it to mean, um, not human relationship. But counseling is all about the human person, right? How can you how can you help people become happier as human persons if you're training them to do a only that one very limited thing, which is to seize and exercise power, or to cede all power because you are in the hated category, if that makes sense. Uh, if you hear the sound of my voice. Give me a call. It's 515-602-9655. This is the Uncounseling Show with Dr. Fred Boley, OP. And we're talking about uh, the effect of woke politics or the woke ideology on the practice of counseling and psychotherapy. So I've just said that part of the problem with the the woke uh, ideology is that it looks at people not as fully human, but as members of a class. So you are not a particular person who was born at a particular time and place in history and and geography. You are a member of the cisgender... um, um, (laughs) I'm trying to get the right word. Hegemony, right? Uh, You are a permanent oppressor because you are cisgender. Um, Therefore, it doesn't matter what you think. And there is no hope for you to actually uh, become a better person, a more resilient person or a kinder person. Your goal is to become more in line with the political orthodoxy of the the woke movement. So I've talked about power and um, it means as well that everything is understood through the lens of politics, right? If you think that we have a very good um, political atmosphere now I don't know anyone who does then why would you want to view everything through that lens right? everything is about power but not only power on on a personal basis so every friendship or every marriage is all about who has the power and who can force the other person to um, to give them their own way but also everything is about national politics right or even global politics um, whether you are doing well as a person is not nearly so important as whether we have passed the bill um, to cut greenhouse emissions, for example, right? Or whether you are, are learning how to be a better and therefore happier person pales in comparison with whether we have passed the bill to uh, outlaw conversion therapy, some of you are probably familiar with this um, catchphrase, conversion therapy, which is almost never used by the people who used to actually do it. To the extent that it's going on now, it is going on very quietly, and hopefully nobody ever hears about it because it's illegal in many places. So in the West, many places, conversion therapy is illegal. What is it? Well, if you experience same-sex attraction, you're a man and you're attracted to other men, But according to the faith, um, putting those feelings into action is wrong. 
right? That would mean you are acting sexually outside of marriage. Therefore, you can't do that without committing a sin. But here you are stuck with these same-sex attractions. You don't want it. You didn't choose it. You can't help it. What are you going to do about it? It might be nice if you could actually get them to leave you alone, right? I think that's pretty reasonable. Um, I'm not trying to create an equivalency, but you could say the same thing about someone who is attracted to little children. Um, That would be very nice if you found that yourself with those horrible attractions, right, to be able to, to get rid of them or to change them or make them leave you alone. But if you are in the protected class of being uh, of having same-sex attraction, then you are not allowed to go and ask a therapist to help you change those attractions. Conversion therapy is not very often successful, even when it was allowed. But it's not never successful. You know, it's not true that people don't change what or who they're attracted to. That happens quite frequently it often happens very slowly and subtly but people do change it's just completely incorrect to say that it's uh, impossible for someone to lose their same sex attraction or to gain opposite sex attraction in fact one of the things that you frequently find is that people will say well i was married and then i discovered that i was same sex attracted okay fine but if that's possible then it's possible the other way The point of all this is that you are not allowed to explore those things. You're not allowed to talk about them or find ways to deal with them or suggest strategies that someone might use if they don't want that particular sexual attraction. Well, that's just totally unethical. If you look at what the philosophy of counseling is, counseling is looking at each person as an individual. You know, each person is unique. And Furthermore, we spend a lot of time drumming it into students' head, counseling students. You know, you don't set the goals for counseling. It's the client who sets the goals. Well, what if my client wants to change the same-sex attraction? I run the risk of losing my license and even being hauled off to jail in some places, right? So that's the whole thing with uh, with the, uh, the woke ideology, that there are certain set classes Some of them are privileged, such as being white, male, or cisgender. Other ones are permanently victims. So that's being uh, black, female, or transgender. Um, And same goes for sexual orientation. If you're same-sex attracted, then that is one of the protected categories. But who decided that? You know, when did we ever have a free discussion of that? If we had one before, we can't have one now. Because one of the most egregious aspects of the woke ideology is that once it gets into power, it forbids any questioning of its tenets. One of the basic, um, most basic aspects of the woke ideology is that you are not allowed to question it. Now, if you go back and you look at uh, Freudian stuff, um, Freud was a very interesting guy, you know, a very interesting writer, a lot of interesting ideas. But what happened was, as his ideas gained ascendancy over academia, over the training programs for um, psychotherapists, then uh, whenever anyone would try to question um, Freudian orthodoxy, 
the people who were on the inside would immediately use Freudian methods to analyze the person's character and psychology who was trying to argue about whether it made sense or not, right? You have a genetic fallacy there. Any argument that you present why there might be a problem with the other person's theory, the other person uses the theory to immediately call you or brand you as being uh, sick, right? You have a, a, a some sort of a neurosis, and that is only, the only possible reason why you would stand there and question the uh, the official doctrine of Freudianism. Well, that finally uh, decayed, and, and nowadays we have dynamic theorists who are much more reasonable, um, neo-Freudianism, whatever. But instead of having the old Freudian genetic fallacy, we now have the woke genetic fallacy, so that you're not allowed to question wokeism. If you question wokeism, that proves that you are evil, and you are shouted at, screamed at. There's, there's nothing, almost... There is no uh, punishment, like summary punishment, that is not out of question for you if you are not um, trotting out the party line on this stuff. So you see someone who questions the fact that, well, are we sure that we should have uh, transgender uh, men uh, compete against women, the transgender compete against the cisgender? Well, there's not an argument about it. I'm sure there are people who put forward arguments. I'm not trying to say everyone does this. But what you notice on the news is that the reaction is one of violence, right? They scream. They try to scream the person down. They're not like shouting arguments. They're they're shouting insults and threats. And then it goes over into violence as well. And I don't know how much coverage this gets on on the news, but. Uh, the immediate reaction is not one of reason. Like, I think you are wrong to say this, and so here is why. You know, you can have a passionate argument like that. But once you get into the regime of wokeism, critical social justice, argument is not allowed. You are a evil, uh, an evil person who does not uh, deserve to be heard. So we have um, uh, people being denied a public platform. They invite a Supreme Court justice to a law school to address the, the law students or a, a society. Um, but no, they're, they're not allowed to speak because they're evil, because they uh, have not towed the line with, uh, with that cr- critical social justice ideology. So it makes it very difficult for us to have any sort of discussion or any sort of improvement or change or adjustment and the way we do things, if having the wrong opinions makes you evil or a person who is cast out. So right now, you're listening to the Uncounseling Show. Uh, call up with any questions or comments on 515-602-9655. I'm Dr. Fred Boley, OP, and I'm talking about uh, critical social justice and its effects on counseling and psychotherapy. Um, I am very skeptical about critical social justice, not because I don't believe there are evils in our society. There obviously are. Racism still exists, and it, it must be confronted. Um, but I do not believe in critical social justice because it makes um, r- rational or reasonable argument almost impossible. And I would find any sort of ideology that pulls the, the, the ladder up after it, right? Once they get into power, 
and make it impossible to, for the rest of us to share power with them. That is in and of itself a, a major red flag for me. Um, if you if you look at Soviet um, communism, right? What was one of the worst things about that? Once the Soviets got in, you were not allowed to question the Soviets. But you find that in every system that is based on power. The French Revolution. It's not only the um, the fact that we believe certain things, but we also have to talk about them in certain ways. And if you don't talk about them in those ways, then you're immediately branded the enemy. You're evil because you haven't heard the new set of words that came out this week. So the old set of words shows that you are a um, a conservative or a reactionary. You want to bring us back to the horrible days that were before or whatever. But the point is that all these systems have as their goal not to help people become more virtuous, in other words, to have the strength needed to make the good decisions, to have a happy life. But instead, they um, are, are based on the effort to be more um, politically acceptable, you know, to be more acceptable by the in-group. So that um, you see, for example, last week, there's a there's a a critical social justice organization that's falling apart because the people who spent all their time going outside and screaming at other people who they thought were the evil ones, one of them used the wrong words and was accused, therefore, of racism. It's always this way. In fact, I would say our only hope of getting the the boot of critical social justice off the neck of our way of educating people and universities and so forth is that they all form the, the circular firing squad, right? Sooner or later, you didn't say it exactly right, so therefore you are part of the enemy. And uh, thankfully nowadays we're not sending them to the guillotine, but we send them to the academic or the uh, career guillotine, right? Um, you were supposedly at the forefront of all this uh, crit- critical social justice, but because you used the wrong language, now you're out of a job. It's self-destructive, and so therefore I have hope on a practical basis that maybe we could loosen its grip on uh, academia and also, more importantly for me, uh, therapy. Okay. So, I said before, the basis of psychotherapy is the human person. If you do not understand what the human person is, then you cannot understand how the human person can flourish. And that is true happiness, right? So everything in nature has its own essence, its own nature. Um, Plants are plants by the virtue that they have the essence of plants. And the same thing goes with animals. So plants have to take in uh, water and nutrients. They have to grow. They have to uh, exclude waste produce seeds, reproduce themselves in in some way, maybe not always seeds, but they have to find a way to reproduce, right? And uh, that's what makes them plants. Animals have everything that a plant has, but they add something else to it. Animals can move towards good stuff and away from bad stuff, right? So uh, if it's not able to do that, an animal is not a good example of an animal. You can't say that the animal is flourishing if it can't move. Or if it can't sense, if it can't hear, see, or taste, you know, if its senses are 
limited or broken. And in the same way, humans have everything that all our animal friends have, but we have something extra besides that. And the extra that we have is the ability to understand the very thing that we're talking about now, the abstracts. We can abstract from particulars and have the idea of animals, right? So for a dog, as I often say, for a dog, there's nothing more interesting than another dog, right? It only has to hear a bark or a yip, or it only has to smell another dog, and that is very exciting indeed. But if I use my blue pen and I make a picture, not a very nice picture, but it's a, anyone who looks at that picture of a, several simple lines can tell that I'm trying to make a dog, right? If you're playing Pictionary, everybody would guess that right away. But it is completely uninteresting to the dog. Beyond that, even more, if I put the, the sort of random or um, arbitrary figures, D-O-G, then all human beings, all English people at least, people who can read English, will immediately uh, have images of, of vague images of dogs in their head and they will have the concept of a dog in their mind. But the, the, the fact that we can understand, um, uh, we can deal with concepts or uh, substances traditionally means that we also can think about time. So uh, there are various possibilities, right? We could do this podcast or we could run up the road and get an ice cream. Ice cream, definitely. But if we run and get ice cream, we can imagine what that would be like. If we stay here and do the podcast, we can imagine what that would be like. Um, and that gives us the ability to make our choices, right? The only thing that a dog has, lovable as they are, is a series of attractions on a really basic level. And the attractions that are stronger... Uh, as against the repulsions, will determine what the dog does. Dogs are not really naughty at all. I often talk about dogs being naughty. But they're not naughty. They're just, they have a set of uh, attractions and repulsions, and whichever is the strongest wins in the end. With us, we might be very, very strongly repulsed by one particular option, but we take that option anyway because we think that by accepting something that is um, on a basic level evil, we can achieve something not morally evil, but painful or disgusting or whatever. We, but by choosing that, we can achieve something that's even greater, right? We can have something that's better. And we have uh, eventually, as our goal for all of those decisions, is one thing. We want to be happy. We might disagree about what true happiness is, but nobody can deny reasonably, rationally, that such an ultimate goal does exist for the human person. So you have to have a clear idea of what a person is to know if they're uh, doing well. How do you make good decisions? It's not just a, a list of, uh, of pros and cons. You know, It's not rationally going through. That is, that's the start of it. But to make good decisions, you have to have good habits. You, know, you have to have habits of courage. You have to have balance in your life. Um, temperance, right? You have to have a certain sort of practical wisdom to be able to understand the situation that you're looking at. Um, and you have to have, uh, ultimately, um, my mind is going blank and I can't remember the fourth <laughs> cardinal uh, virtue. But we need those in order to be happy. Um, you cannot have those 
if you are blaming all of your problems um, or thinking of all the problems in terms of uh, power struggle and class. It just does not work. And in fact, more and more we are finding those therapists who push this onto their clients more clients be um, quite unhappy rather than happy at all. Guess what? I think we might have someone doing it. Let's try this. <laughs> Very shortly, we are going to have a guest, Yatek, the Dread Dominican. And he's going to be talking to us about um, uh, the sacraments the sacraments, and how most of them can help us be reconciled with most uh, or uh, with other people and with uh, <laughs> and uh, with other denominations or religious groups and also with God ultimately. So um, I'm going to see if I can get Yatek on here. He's struggling with the technology. This is normal. Uh, let me see. What you need to do there is oh, where to go? That's me. There we are. So uh, you need to get into the uh, four person and podcast. And what you want to do is mute this side when you get going on the other side, if that makes sense. So he's working identification. This is the Uncounseling Show on the Four Persons uh, podcast and blog. We have lots of really good shows, same time every evening, and also some extra times. I'm going to give you information about that later. Uh, If you have questions or comments, uh, we would love to hear from you, whether it's about the sacraments, or about uh, counseling or a crazy ideology. So the number is, once again, 515-602-955. Now let me go back here and check with my friend and see how that's progressing. Any luck here? I'm going to try this. I uh, learn new things about this every week. They're not new to everyone else, but uh, when you have a little bit of dementia going, I'm only joking. Um, Here we go. Call a guest. Phone number. Let's see if this will work. Bear with me. I'm trying to work at three different technologies at once. I'm from an era of uh, telegraph. Just kidding. There we go. Let's see if this works. It'd be cool if it does. There. Maybe. Hey there, Fred. How's it going? Good. How are you? Not doing too bad. Awesome. Sorry about the uh, technology as usual. If I were more apt, I would know how to advise you, but uh, as it is, I'm happy to be here at all. 
So yeah, no, happy to be here as well. To talk to us about uh, the sacraments. So maybe you could start by um, just reviewing what is a sacrament after all. Yes, I mean, there, there's a few different basic definitions that I've seen flit around. Um, the one I'll give you is from uh, Father Parente's uh, Dictionary of Dogmatic Theology. Uh, a sacrament is a sensible sign, productive of grace. Um, in, in other words, a sacrament is the privileged means uh, that God has willed, by which God has willed to share his divine life with us. Um, and so, it is a yeah, sensible, sensible thing. very important. Sensible sign. What do you mean by sensible? Like it's not safe, it's not foolish, or what do you mean for that word? Yes, sensible. So I, I am using that in somewhat of, um, of an obscure sense, but um, sensible just in that, in that it can be sensed with our five senses um, in, okay. in some way, shape, or form. You know, we, we taste the Eucharist. We see it in adoration. Um, we hear the priest's words in the confessional. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so these, these are um, sensible means, sensible ways um, that God in his love and in his mercy um, has chosen to share his grace with us in a way that makes it easier for us to understand. Um, easier for us to appreciate, easier for us to um, see it work in our lives. Um, cool. This falls on the way he has created us um, as bodily sensing creatures. So he, he saves us through these sensible signs. Um, and it, 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 There's a tricky line to, to walk here because the sacraments are symbols in a real sense, but they're not mere symbols. Um, mm-hmm. Sacraments are productive of grace, as, as Father Parente's definition had. Um, sacraments are action verbs. They do something. Um, the word you often hear is efficacious. Uh, they are efficacious signs. Mm-hmm. Um, to illustrate this with a counterexample, uh, what's not an efficacious sign? Um, employees must wash hands mm-hmm. before returning to work. Um, we live in a fallen world. Um, imagine if that if uh, if that transpired by means if it transpired uh, that by means of that sign that employee washed his hands. Um, imagine if the sign brought about what it signified simply by being that sign. Um, then that sign would be an efficacious sign. As we know, unfortunately, it's not. But uh, that, that example, that does give you some sense of what a sacrament is. Yeah. So, this, so you're saying that if it wasn't an efficacious, if it was an efficacious sign, right, the employees must wash hands. You're saying that merely by being there as a sign, employees' hands are already washed. Yes. Uh, that, that red eight-sided sign, which, which you may have blown through on your way home from work today, I don't know, um, that would actually know? stop your car simply by being a stop sign. That's an efficacious sign. Um, stop signs are not like that. Uh, the signs in the bathrooms of Kentucky Waffle Houses are not like that. Um, I don't know. Maybe they don't even have those signs at Waffle House. I couldn't say for sure. Um, but those are not efficacious signs. Sacraments are. They bring about that which they signify as symbols. Okay. So prayer meeting. Could a prayer meeting be a sacrament? Yeah, so um, the answer is no, and I, I'm going to give my due to prayer meetings here. Um, but you've got to think about this. In, in, I mean, so, so we ended on that point of efficaciousness. Um, but a sacrament is more than that. It, it is that, but it's more than that. And so, in fact, even if that, uh, obviously, even if that sign in the bathroom of a Kentucky Waffle House were efficacious, it wouldn't be a sacrament. Um, sacraments are efficacious signs, but they're more than that. Uh, the sacraments are sacraments because they affect something in particular, and that something is God's grace, his gift of his own divine life. Hmm. Um, the difference between a sacrament and any old efficacious sign is that Jesus Christ instituted the sacraments as a means of giving us grace. Santa brings presents. Um, Spider-Man slings webs. Jesus Christ is the Lord of grace. That's his thing. He loves to hand it out, and he has chosen seven excellent means for doing that through his church. So. Can a prayer meeting also be a means by which God gives grace? 
absolutely yes, and I expect very many of them do. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that the prayer meeting is not one of those seven only efficacious signs by which God surely gives grace. Simply by means of the signs that they are, if they are celebrated validly, grace flows through them. That happens many times at prayer meetings, but it doesn't happen all the time, and it doesn't happen efficaciously because of what a prayer meeting is. Now, to, um, to, to kind of speak to this from, from another angle and to kind of anticipate mm -hmm. an objection here, um, none of this means that the sacraments are like the Catholic version of Wingardium Leviosa. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, the, these are not um, spells by which we arm wrestle God into doing what we want. Right. Um, the Catholic claim is simply God created us bodily. He works through sensible means to save us. Um, he saves us in the way in which he created us, even though we have fallen in our creaturely state. Um, you might say, isn't grace a spiritual thing? Um, why, why do we have to work through these sensible signs? Um, grace certainly is a spiritual thing. Um, the trouble is, some things are not very spiritual. Um, those things include me. Um, I am sinful. I am weak. I am lazy. I am dull. If I am all those things, Fred, I, I know you are many times more. Um, <laughs> we both need uh, something familiar to lead us to something higher. Um, we mm -hmm. enter through the door that we know best, and we go out through God's own door. Um, we need that visible sign to lead us to the invisible reality. Um, and I think you, you find support for this, this broad idea that God saves us in the state in which he has created us, um, this bodily, creaturely state. Um, you find that in the creed. Uh, I mean, we profess every Sunday. We look forward with St. Paul and all the saints to the resurrection of the body. God saves us in our bodies, not in spite of them. The sacraments mm -hmm. are his way of getting going with that sanctification of soul and body now and not later. Cool. So um, you said seven. What are the sacraments? Let's see if you know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Baptism, the Holy Eucharist, reconciliation, confirmation, holy orders, matrimony, and anointing of the sick. All right. So uh, from another point of view, like maybe from a more Protestant point of view, um, like, a, for example, a Baptist point of view, I was raised in the Baptist church. I love the Baptist people. Um, almost everyone I love in this world is a Baptist. But they would say something like this. Well, the sacraments aren't really like you say. I mean, they don't make a difference. Uh, I mean, they don't. They're not magic, okay? So they don't actually change anything, but they are psychological, right? They're psychological inter interventions that help people or maybe even subliminally influence people, modern, to become better Christians. What would you say to that? Yeah, so I, I think there's a way in which I want to give this objection its due in that, like, we really do need to appreciate what's going on psychologically in someone in whom the Lord is working through the grace of the sacraments. So, so like if, if you were to put the question as, you know, really strictly speaking, what do sacraments effect? Um, mm -hmm. Then the, no, we would have to say that's, that's not properly speaking what they are. They're not properly speaking psychological interventions or, or some sort of subliminal influence to, to help someone be a better Christian by making them feel a certain way or sense certain things. Um, but like, I think there, there's a real way in which it's not either grace or psychology. It's, it's both hands. Um, mm -hmm. And so if, if you put that question a different way, not properly speaking, what do sacraments effect? But if you ask a little bit of a broader question, what are the sacraments effects? Um, is there something psychological going on? Um, I, you know, if God's grace is at work in you, is it intervening in the depths of your suke, your psyche, your psychology, your soul? 
Absolutely. You better believe it. Um, you know, subliminal influence, if someone uses that term, um, I, I, I don't know as much what, what someone might mean by that, but um, could that be something like the mysterious and invisible and merciful workings of God's grace? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think this, this objection gets it at an important truth, which is that God does work in these ways for the sacraments. But the key is grace is the active ingredient. Um, grace is the catalyst of the spiritual reaction by which God purifies you as the embodied psychological man or woman you are to bring him to himself. Um, so I, I think that objector gets at part of the truth. It's, it's opening up their view to see the way in which God has deigned um, to work in his mercy through the sacraments to give us his grace. Um, that shows you the full picture. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. I love it. So now um, uh, here's, the, here's the nub. Here's what I really want to know, having talked about uh, this uh, before with you. St. Barnabas Reconciliation Ministries, we often say that we are working to reconcile family members to each other, denominations to each other, and all people to God. So which of the sacraments can do each of these, would you say, Yatsik? All of them. Um, I, I, I mean, you know, if this is a seven-man roster, there are certainly some star players on the team. Um, nothing roots out the cancer cells of sin from us, like the sacrament of penance. Um, nothing unites us as one church, one body of Christ in the way that the Eucharist does. But if the church is right about what I've said so far, that what makes a sacrament a sacrament is that it affects grace. I mean, the answer to your question has got to be all seven. Um, grace heals. It restores. It reconciles. Um, and I think the last of those three verbs is very important because if it were just healing, just restoring, I could make the mistake of thinking it's just about me. Uh, but with reconcile, I, I mean, if I said to you, good morning, friend, I'm feeling quite reconciled today. How are you? Um, your natural question would be, oh, reconciled to whom? Um, you know, our, our Lord's mm -hmm. grace does heal, it does restore, but it also reconciles me to everyone and everything that belongs to the kingdom of God. It, it can reunite me to a father I've not spoken to in years. It can heal the wounds mm -hmm. of, of Christianity as a whole. It can restore us to God's friendship by reconciling us to one another and to our creator. And if mm -hmm. that's what grace can do, it's what every single one of the sacraments can do as well. Well, that's cool. Um, if we talk about reconcile, I mean, it's kind of like if you if you need reconciliation, then you're unreconciled, or uh, I don't know, maybe you can think of a, a better word for that. But uh, could we also say it makes peace? Yeah. I think it's, you know, you, you can look at even... I mean, like, like I said, there are some sacraments that immediately spring to mind here, um, Eucharist, Sacrament of Penance, but I, I mean, you think it's more quote-unquote obscure ones, um, anointing of the sick, uh, historically known as extreme unction. Um, right. That, that, that's not just something to like make the family feel better when someone is passing. I mean, that's the church's recognition that, I mean, the, the, the time of your death is a very dangerous time spiritually in, in the pain and the anguish and the fear that you fear, feel. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the devil and his ministers are at work. I mean, they, they are trying to steal your soul at, at the very moment of your death. You need that special grace, that special seal of the sacrament at that moment in your life. Um, and, and I think when you also recognize that the deathbed can be such a powerful place of healing and conversion, Mm -hmm. not only for, for the person who is dying, but for the family gathered with them. Um, mm -hmm. You can see how even on a natural level, 
um, that moment in someone's life can be such a, a, an occasion of reconciliation, um, especially when you have the grace of, of this great sacrament of, of anointing the sick added to it. Um, you know, that, that's only going to be more the case. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, what you said about um, uh, anointing, anointing of the sick, final unction, uh, I think that illustrated it well for me in that um, you're not doing it just to make people feel better, but having done it, it's pretty usual that a person would feel better, that they would gain some kind of uh, comfort from that. Yeah, and I mean, you know, this is the same way where, where God institutes these sacraments because there is some continuity between the way in which he created us and the way in which he saves us. He, he really does save us. He doesn't save an imaginary better version of us. He saves us by healing us through his grace. Um, and so, you know, earthly comfort and consolation is not the point of the sacraments, um, mm-hmm. but it could certainly bring that about. Um, I, I mean, ultimately, you know, God is, is concerned about your eternal salvation, and, and if he has to withdraw some earthly comfort from you to draw you closer to himself for all eternity, I don't think he's going to hesitate to do that. Um, but often in his mercy, he does grant us these consolations um, through grace and in prayer um, that, that do ease our journey through this earthly life as well. So um, we were talking about uh, the Eucharist for a number of weeks in our uh, in our other group, and um, oh, the Eucharist really is the the basis for the church. In that, um, it's not a meal, but that uh, receiving the Eucharist, receiving the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus physically into our physical bodies makes us, in some um, sense that we don't completely understand yet, right, one body. So would you say that that's like an example of reconciliation, or is that something different? Absolutely, yeah. And and I think it's really, this is a case where knowing that theological truth, that it is the Eucharist that is the form of our unity and the form of our our church is what makes our church the one body of Christ that it is. Um, It's very important to hold on to that theological truth as you go through a world in which the church looks anything but united. Denominations or schisms, um, all the sorts of conflict that can arise between nations, between families, between members of of individual families. Um, There is no shortage of evidence that comes before our eyes that seems to indicate uh, that we are in anything but communion with each other. It, it seems to sh- tell us that conflict is the natural state of, of human life, um, not mm-hmm. the result of, of a fall from God's grace and, and original justice, um, but instead, as, as many thinkers during the Enlightenment theorized, that, that to be at war is, is simply our, our natural state. Um, there's no shortage of evidence of division and conflict and war that comes before our eyes. Um, especially at a, at a time like today when, when so many very hot conflicts are, are raging around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so important to remember that theological truth that the unity of the church is not a matter of my sentiments towards the people next to me in the pews each Sunday. Um, I hope I like them just well. Um, that's not always going to be the case for everybody. Um, yeah. It's not just a matter of our efforts um, 
in, in the classroom or over the negotiating table or through nonprofits or NGOs, like, like that isn't the source of the unity of the body of Christ. The source of the mm-hmm. unity of the body of Christ is Christ himself in the Eucharist that he gives us of himself um, sacramentally each Sunday, each day, if we're fortunate. Um, I, I do think it's it's so important to, to remember that, um, that, you know, even as, you know, Baptism sort of provides the foundation for this communion um, as reconciliation helps us to, to kind of haul our car back up and on the road after we've gone careening off the side of a cliff. Um, and you know, there's these things that get us on our way and help us on our way, but it's the Eucharist mm-hmm. as the culmination of, of the unity of Christ's church and the unity of the whole human race uh, before and with God. Well, that's uh, fantastic. It's, uh, those words are very um, encouraging, inspiring to me, um, because as a former Protestant, you know, I remember the the pain suffered from the division, you know, and when you're on that side, you really feel it, and I know we feel it on on this side too. But over there, all that there was was continuous exhortations to ourselves and to each other. You know, we need to be unified. These splits are are bad. They discourage people and they drive people away from Christ. We need to be better. We need to do better. And then you disagree about the color of the carpet and you have yet another bad, right? And everybody feels bad about it, but it's very hard to find anything to do that will work. And so I think that's the difference between trying to make people feel better and uh, giving people the truth. You know, right now the truth might not feel good, but eventually you have to believe that the truth will set you free and is the basis for any sort of true happiness. I remember thinking that too about confession. You know, before I was ever, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking about becoming a Catholic at that point. And I went to England and, uh, we went to I went myself to uh, St. Paul's. I don't know if you've ever been over there, but it's the Church of England. Okay, you got to go. <laughs> Beautiful thing yes, to see. Kind of sad to see all the uh, medieval churches standing empty. You know, even if there's people in there, it's uh, essentially empty because the body and blood of Jesus are not there anymore. But anyway, I go into St. Paul's, and one of the things that bothered me all through my uh, younger days, being a youth, was uh, we would have this practice of praying and confessing our sin privately and asking for forgiveness, and that's a great thing, right? And yet, if you are reflective, if you're a sensitive person, you very early on realize that your motivations are not always 100%. And so, therefore... Did I really mean that or didn't I mean that? Was I saying that just to get off the hook or, you know, as a rote thing without any real feeling behind it? And so um, I was never 100% that I had done a good job of privately confessing my sins. So I go into St. Paul's Cathedral and I go up to a person who's like a clergyman and I said, do you offer confession here? Wow. Panic ensues. <laughs> He runs off. People are running back and forth, consulting, whispering, running back and forth. Ah, someone is putting us to the test. We have a modern-day Sadducee amongst us who's trying to embarrass the Church of England. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I just wanted to feel sure, right? So yeah. That's one of the really beautiful things about being a Catholic is that you know, you know, maybe 
no, not maybe, definitely. My motivation is never 100% pure. But if I go with a good will and uh, make a confession, then God forgives my sins through the action of the priest. That's wonderful. I love that story. That's great. So you, I don't know, I presume most of the people who will listen to this are going to be Catholics, right? So they will know what you mean by the sacrament of reconciliation. But um, for those of you who might not be Catholic, um, sacrament of reconciliation is what was traditionally called, as far as I know, <laughs> Nathan will know this better, I mean, <laughs> whatever your name is, will know this better than I, used to be called uh, the sacrament of confession. And it's also called... Yeah, so I... I Go on. I mean, I, I hear reconciliation, confession, penance pretty much interchangeably. I mean, maybe penance the most in, in like official documents, whereas, you know, you'll, you'll hear confession colloquially. But, but yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I'd have to consult some documents myself to, uh, to see what gets put in the official Latin. What if there were other people like me running around out there, Nathan? Shouldn't all Christians, shouldn't all people make use of this wonderful thing that you find in Catholic churches, which is 4.30 on Saturday afternoon, confession. Well, it is nice that we give everyone such a such a convenient time. I don't think anyone else does anything on Saturday evenings. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, this is this is such a wonderful impulse. And, I mean, it, I think this is a really important point to state. The seven sacraments are God's privileged ways of, of his normal means of giving grace through his church. They are not the only means by which God gives grace. It is his gift to give. He can give it as he pleases. It's just that mm-hmm. it very often pleases him to give it through the sacraments. Um, but this impulse to confess my sins that, that you felt um, at St. Paul's Cathedral, much to the consternation of, of the people staffing it apparently, um, is a wonderful impulse. Um, God should be praised whenever that appears in anyone's life. Uh, his injunction for all of us, Catholic, Protestant, and otherwise, is to seek his mercy and to do penance for our sins. Um, I mean, we see mercy being sought. We see penance being done long before um, Christ comes as man incarnate among us. Um, I mean, think of the Old Testament prophets here. I mean, that is genuine penance being done there. Um, mm-hmm. And the impulse to do that before God is a great grace indeed. Um, as far as the sacrament of penance goes, mm-hmm. it, it is a, a more limited case of that broader um, desire to do penance, and it's a specific and a privileged way for us to do that. Um, mm-hmm. so, and this is where where the distinction comes in. Um, when you go into that confessional, you are shooting with live ammo, and you've got to be fully prepared to handle that weapon, quote unquote. Um, is the uh, living as in full? Or yeah, the priest or as a lay person? Yeah, go ahead. As, as a lay person, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's, and I just say that to you know, to to say like. There, there's, you know, you don't want to be an absent-minded guy out on the range. Um, that, that's not a good place to, to lose your focus and, and you know, start drifting your aim 90 degrees to the left or something terrible like that. Um, right. and, and so this is a similar situation. Um, there, there are real explosives, spiritual explosives at work in that confessional. Right. And, and so you need to be living in full sacramental communion with the Christ body of the church um, to seek the sacrament of penance. Um, in a very important way, that full sacramental communion is, is an either-or affair. Um, you're either all in or you're all out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll give an image um, somewhat humorous to, uh, to, to make this simpler. Um, there are some times 
um, will say when it's good for your body to be still, uh, such as when you're sleeping. There are other times when it's good for your body to travel very fast, uh, such as when you drive to work. Mm-hmm. There are no times when it's good for your head to travel fast and your body to stay still. Um, so we could call this the Tom and Jerry principle of ecclesiology. Um, I, I found these, the, the old archive of the classic Tom and Jerry's online a couple weeks ago. I have been just loving it ever since. Uh, I'm seven again and watching Cartoon Network on summer mornings. Um, mm-hmm. But to take the example from, from this wonderful cartoon, um, when Tom, the cat, gets clotheslined by a well-placed fold-out ironing board, his neck is cartoon flexible such that his head can continue to chase Jerry across the house while his body is stuck in the washroom until, of course, he realizes that, in which case his head snaps back into place. Um, Tom the cat bends like that. Your soul does not bend like that. Right. Um, If you, all of you, is in the church, seek the confessional and seek it often. If not, seek the church in which you can rightly seek the confessional. Um, So now, I mean, does this mean there's nothing in the sacrament of penance, nothing the sacrament of penance does for your average Methodist or Lutheran? Um, certainly not. Uh, grace given to one person is grace that tends towards the sanctification of the entire world. Um, but these these visible signs, the sacraments follow visible communion. Um, baptism is, is a bit of an exception here because it, it's the very condition of possibility for that visible communion. Um, and, and so that's, I mean, I don't even know if it's a reason. It's just, it's just a, a reflection of the fact that valid baptism is valid baptism. Um, whether it's administered in the Catholic Church or not, um, so long as it's administered by, you know, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, by mm-hmm. someone who intends to do what the Church does when she baptizes. Um, but for what comes after, for example, for the sacrament of penance, these visible signs and sacraments, they follow on that full visible communion with the Church. Cool. That is a very useful and very clear explanation for which I thank you heartily. Okay, so that's about it for us tonight. Um, Remember, this is a joint production of St. Barnabas Reconciliation Ministries and the Four Persons podcast and blog. Um, St. Barnabas is devoted to promoting reconciliation between all family members, all denominations, and all people and God. So if you would like to send us a comment or question um, when we're off the air, please feel free to write to us at stbarn at proton.com. At S-D-B-A-R-N at ProtonMail.com. Or you can check out the website, saint.org. Remember that every evening on the Four Persons podcast, there are cool shows such as this one. Tomorrow we have the Ken Litchfield show. Um, and then on Friday, no, it's the same day, <laughs> just later on. I don't know. I don't understand what I'm reading. But we have a look at show. Great show. Saturday, the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with William Hemsworth. Got to check that out. And finally, on Sunday, Catholicism rocks because Catholicism does rock, doesn't it, Yatek? Yes, it does. Always has for me. So thank you once again, Dr. Fred Boley, OP. Um, Please write to us or uh, call us when we're on the air, and we would love to have your questions and comments. But meanwhile, we will ask St. Barnabas, Pray for us. And Lord, thank you for this opportunity to uh, do our best to witness to the truth. And I thank you for brothers, especially from uh, the Dominican order, that are willing to help us. Uh, Brothers in Christ, speaking informally, I know you're not a friar. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming on, and I uh, I hope you will come again. So until then, 
Have a great evening. God bless you, everybody. And I'll see you or talk to you next time.